Those of you who have been here for the last few weeks are really into the story. Those of you who are perhaps visiting haven't heard the story as we are hearing it, but you're going to hear a good portion of it this morning. And this is kind of an exciting part. It's about Joseph and about his brothers and their relationship. So let me read from God's word and tell you a little bit about this, and then Pastor Barry's going to expand on it for us. When J Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might, come, might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. You know, I forgot to tell you where this is. It's Genesis 42. My apologies. And those of you who want to look at the Pew Bibles, it's page 35 and 36. Got so excited about the story, I forgot to tell you. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest in this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go down from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. Let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. 
and they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they further trembling to one another turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of your father, one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest man. Men, leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put them in my hands, and I will bring them back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should, come to, should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, though this is an exciting story, yet Father, it is more than a story. It is your truth, it is your word, and it is for us today. And so as Pastor Barry comes, Father, give him liberty, give him words that we can hear, but not only hear, put into action, I pray. 
In your precious name, amen. We are picking up this story in the life of Joseph. This is what the story is about. And what I aim to do this morning is to proclaim to you something about God. In other words, as you look to the story, I don't want you first of all and foremost to look, well, there's probably something in here that I should be avoiding, something in here I should probably be imitating in the characters of the story. And that's true, but the most important thing is that there is something here that is true about God. And I want to proclaim to you something that is true about God in the story of this family. And this is what it is. God is at work. Those wonderful words in, in C.S.S. Lewis's work, the snow is melting. It's not good sledding anymore for the wicked witch. Aslan is on the move. God is on the move in the life of the family of Jacob. Using the circumstances of famine, these two things come together here, the circumstances of famine and the circumstances of Joseph's rule. Those two things ring out in the, in the text. In Canaan, Jacob and his family, they're going to die. They're looking at each other. What are we going to do? And then those words ring out. And Joseph is governor in the land of Egypt. Both of those are God's doings in his works of providence, both the famine as well as Joseph's rule that we have seen over the past few number of chapters of how Joseph ascended from a prison to, to be governor of the land. And God uses these circumstances to intervene, to intervene, to intercept a family that is in crisis. Jacob's family. Proverbs 11, verse 30 says, he who saves souls is wise. And that is exactly what God is up to here. Through the hands of Joseph, Joseph is, is in all of his actions up to saving the souls of his brothers, to intervene in their path, to stop them in their tracks, to, to give them no choice in their actions, but to choose the right path for mercy's sake. And Joseph uses his authority. That's what the whole story is about, is Joseph using his authority because the tables are turned now, uh, 180 degrees from when they, his brothers, threw Joseph into a pit. Now Joseph is throwing his brothers into a prison. All of the cries of distress that pierced the ears of his brother's ears when they threw him and sold him as good for dead to Egypt. Now Joseph rings in, in Joseph's ears ring the cries of his own brothers. Tables are turned completely and the distress is reversed. And he uses this authority to test his brothers, to see if there is any capacity in them for the fear of God, to see if there is any sorrow for their brutal ways. Psalm 1 says of the righteous that they are like a tree planted by water, bearing fruit in season. Do you know what verse 4 says? It says, not so the wicked. 
not so the wicked. This is Jacob's family at this present state. They are not like a tree planted by streams of water. They are not bearing fruit. They are not thriving. They are not prospering. This is a family in distress. You can tell it even in the opening verses when Jacob speaks harshly to his brothers. What are you, what are you doing just standing, standing around? This is not a family that is trusting of one another. It is a family that is in need of profound reconciliation. And as the chapters go on, we'll see that's what it's all about. And near the end of the chapter, you can see in Jacob's heart when he speaks of his sorrow that I've lost Joseph and I've lost Simeon now and I'm going to lose Benjamin. You can see that there is a, 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 an implication even though that the, the story was they, they lied to Jacob about Joseph that there's mistrust between them. And this is all under the merciful providential hand of God. Bringing Joseph to the throne for the purpose of intervening in Jacob's family. Now, I want to lift your eyes just for a little a moment off of the text onto the, the broader scope of the story of the scriptures. And it's an important thing to do to, that it's not about us, it's, it's about God. And lift your eyes to the broader scope and don't be so quick to draw the lines of what am I supposed to do here? How does this apply to me? This is what God is doing in Jacob's family. This is the family of redemption. This is the covenant family. This is Abraham's family. This is the family through whom God has promised to save the whole world. This is Jesus's family. If this family does not experience intervention, Jesus has no family. That God working in this family to prepare the world for redemption, but the family needs intervention. They're brutal. They are murderous. They are foolish. A foolish lot that appears to be no different than what God saw in Genesis 6 when God looked down upon the earth and he says that all the inclinations of their heart are only evil all the time. That's a pretty good description of Jacob's family at this point in their life. And this is a story of mercy. This is the story of all the, the mysterious workings of providence, working to intervene for the purposes of redemption, ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who, who wakes us up, who gets in our face, gives us no options of where to go, and says, wake up, man. Will you fear God? And so in this story, these two storylines that we have been tracking along with Jacob in Canaan and Joseph in Egypt come together. They merge together and hold on because God is doing something remarkable in the life of Jacob's family. A work of mercy, a work of redemption, and a work of reconciliation. God hasn't put Joseph on the throne merely to feed the bellies, merely to provide for their physical nourishment and to keep them alive materially, but a far greater scope in the purposes of God to heal their souls and to awaken their conscience. Here's the main point that I think the story is about. As I've already said, it's a story about God. In other words, the question of the text isn't, what am I supposed to do? The first and most important question of the text is, what are you like, God? It's how we read our Bibles, no matter where we are in the Bible. The question is always, Lord, show me what you are like. Reveal something of your character to me that I would see it. And in this story, 
That is what God is doing. He's revealing something that is true about himself. What is God like? God is a God who declares the future before it happens. And this story is about dream fulfillment. As it says, when the brothers are bowed before him, Joseph recognizes that, oh, I've already been told about this. God has already declared these circumstances to me previously in a dream. That's what God is like. He declares the future to his people, shows us how what he declares is fulfilled. Why? In order that we would trust him in the present. It's true of God's dealings with his people through all of his workings, including the present age. God has told us about the future in order that we would trust him with the present. The dream that God had spoken before of is being fulfilled right now in their lives. Secondly, God tests the hearts of his people. This is something that that God does. He, he plummets the depths of their, of their souls. And do they have the capacity to fear me? You can, as you read the story, you can, you can hear the, the sounding of the depths of, of the brother's souls to see what is there, like the, the ping that is, is there. It's just, what's going to return? What's going to come back in all of the circumstances that are presented to them? Will they trust me? Will they have the capacity to to fear vertically or do they only fear horizontally? So much of life calls upon us to hear, to fear horizontally. And God puts his people on earth. He puts his name on his people. I'm convinced this is the the purpose of, of Israel, that there would be a witness for God on this earth that trusts in him. In the midst of all of the nations, that trust in God. It's a very simple idea. But there are, like I say, so much pressure in our lives to fear horizontally instead of fearing vertically. Two simple points. The first one is dream fulfillment, and the second one is conscience awakening that the story is all about. First of all, dream fulfillment. Use your imagination this morning. I'm sure you have already. Imagine the scene. The ten brothers are on their faces before Joseph in Egypt as an Egyptian ruler. They don't know who he is. His, his identity is masked from them. All they know is that they're going to die if they don't get bread. And it is a clear fulfillment of Joseph's dream. In Genesis chapter 37, he says, I've had a dream. The dream is the sheaves of wheat that all come and bow down before me. And they said, he said, well, I've had another dream. And the dream is that the 11 stars and the the sun and the moon all bow down before me. And in fact, that is the circumstances in which the jealousy and the hatred of Joseph's brothers is stirred. And they throw him into a, a pit and sell him off into Egypt, which begins all of these perplexing circumstances of providence that get us to the place in the story where we are right now. That dream started the whole thing. And imagine what all must be in Joseph's mind now. They don't know who he is. And all of his all of his power and all of his pomp and all of his authority. It's been probably 20 years. Joseph was a a young boy of 17 years old. 
and now he's about 40. You know, there's, there's a lot of transitions that go on in a man, especially to ascending to the throne. And Joseph is in a, in a place of, of authority, unrecognizable from a, from a young, weak, 17-year-old, helpless boy, now governor of Egypt. And he, he looks at these 10 heads bowing on the ground, bowing exactly as the dream said, and he, he must go, what? oh my, <laughs> oh my. Look, what do we have here? Wow. And the light goes on in, in Joseph's mind. He knows exactly what's going on. And the story makes plain that Joseph recognized the fulfillment of the dream, which is a significant thing because all that Joseph now does in the rest of the story, it isn't animated by revenge. It's not animated by being vindictive. It's animated by Joseph's understanding that the dream is being fulfilled. And the light goes on in Joseph's head. And he understands what is going on. All of his hardships... And he has faced many hardships. We've read through all of these hardships. All of his abuse that he has suffered. All of his years in prison. All of the, the mystery and the, the perplexities of God's providence. All of the integrity that, that he possessed through all of those things. Was, was all of it for nothing? What's the purpose of it all? And now the perplexities of providence become the clear path of provision. He's the ruler in Egypt. He has grain. His family is starving. I am the redeemer of my family. I am the, the person who is ruling over my family in order to sustain them and to keep them alive. And God has given him power, absolute dominion over his family, not to destroy them. You see, you don't need to destroy wicked people. Wickedness destroys evil people. And that's the path that they're on. They're on a path to destruction, a path of self-destruction. So Joseph isn't working to destroy his family and not merely to give them grain. He's working to save them from their own self-destruction. He is what we all wish we had and what we have in Christ, a benevolent dictator. He's not capricious in what he is doing. He is wise. Proverbs says that the righteous act justly. And Joseph is acting justly with his brothers. We immediately anticipate the moment as we read the story, anticipate the great moment when Joseph will rip off all of his Egyptian garb and speak to them in their plain language and say, it's me, it's Joseph, this is who I am, it's Joseph. 20 years later, but not yet. There's still three chapters away. We've got to wait for that. Hope you come back. It's going to be amazing. This is the anticipation of that moment, but not yet. Now, what Joseph is doing now is he's using his advantage of a hidden identity. Ever follow themes of hidden identity? They're, 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 they're great um, material for drama. I think almost every Shakespeare story has a hidden identity in it and cross-dressing. But uh, this is... This is uh, a hidden identity and his authority. He uses his hidden identity and his authority to do soul work. Soul work. Ever know when God's working on your soul? Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's perplexing. But it's merciful. It's working for our redemption. 
And the goal of all of Joseph's activity here, the goal of his words towards his brothers, is for redemption. It is for conscience awakening. To wake them up. Proverbs 5.22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare them. These men were ensnared. It says, The wicked are held fast by the cords of sin. These men are held fast by the cords of, of their choices and of their brutish, jealous, murderous ways. And this is a story where those cords begin to be unbound. Proverbs 32.10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. These are men who are on a path to sorrow. If they don't wake up. And so Joseph does not quickly entrust himself to them. <laughs> Marvelous intrigue in the story, isn't it? He doesn't trust them. It's the same thing as said of Jesus, of the crowds. There's no way I'm putting myself in your hands. It wasn't that they were going to kill him. It's that they were going to crown him. But he didn't trust the crowds. Joseph also. He's, he's probing the depths. <laughs> you can hear the pings as I said. Should I say it again? Ping. The depths of their soul. He knows them to be driven by jealousy with murderous capacity. They threw him in a pit and they left him for dead. Who knows now what they would do to Benjamin? His, his, and, 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 he, and he's probing him to see if they would even tell the truth about that. Benjamin, his only full younger brother who he longs to know the condition of. But what would they do to Joseph? What would they, what would they even do to his father? And so he uses his advantage to test them. Do they have any capacity for remorse? Can they tell the truth? Are they still liars? Is there any fear of God in them at all? And the story works to build pressure upon them. So they have no options. They're completely hemmed in by you get to the end of the, of the chapter. They are before a ruler who has the power to destroy them. On the one hand, they have the option of dying in prison or being executed by a ruler for insubordination. On the other hand, they have the option of dying by famine. There is simply no other place to go. Will they tell the truth? And they make this admission to Joseph that there is ten of us. One is at home and one is no more. One is no more. He's right before them. One is no more. But they tell the truth. It's exactly right. And it, and it seems to prick their conscience bringing back perhaps the, the cries of Joseph. He was brought into, brought into a pit and sold off, a, one who is no more. And later as they're recounting, Joseph overhears them, speaking of the abuse that they remember Joseph suffering. And Joseph runs and hides for the emotion that he feels in his tenderheartedness. Will they care about Simeon? How'd you like to be left in jail by this group saying, oh yeah, we'll come get you. We promise. We'll be back. <laughs> See you later. And why Simeon? Why did he choose Simeon? You know, the murderous words of, here comes that dreamer. The murderous words of, let's sell him. Let's throw him in a pit. All of those words had to come from somebody. One brother must have said all of those things. Perhaps it was Simeon. I don't know. But would they leave him for dead? Will they lie to their father like they lied to Joseph? 
They go back, Joseph has, or Jacob rather, um, they lied to Jacob about Joseph. Will they now lie to Jacob about Simeon? Well, you know, there's a lot of wild beasts out there. Look at that, we got another one. It's gone. Here's his garment. Sorry. Will they lie? Will they tell the truth? And they do. They go back and they tell Jacob exactly as it is. Will they steal the money in their sacks? And in all of this, they face the very real consequences of potential imprisonment, potentially even execution at the hands of this Egyptian lord, or death by famine. And they're out of options. God hems them in. I was reading through the book of Isaiah recently, and I came to the last chapter in Isaiah 66. It says this, interesting words. If you're wondering, why, why does Joseph speak harshly? Why can't he just be nice to them? He's his brother. Like, is this really right? And I came across these words in Isaiah 66 that showed me that what Joseph is doing in his brothers has a parallel in what God does with his people. Listen to this, Isaiah 66, 4. I will choose harsh treatment. This is God speaking. I will choose harsh treatment for Israel, and I'll bring their fears upon them. Because God's cruel, because God's vindictive. Now he's doing soul work in the life of his people. His people need to wake up. And so he uses machinations. He uses measures. He uses the, the circumstances of providence, like Nicole read from 1 Peter, that don't be surprised when you face difficult times. God is refining you to test you to prove, is your faith genuine? I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they don't listen. And they did what was evil in my eyes and, they, and chose that in which I do not delight. And so it's merciful when, when God wakes us up and brings someone like a Nathan into our life and says, you are the man. You are. You're right. I was asleep in a pig pen. And the youngest son wakes up. A rooster crows. And a Peter wakes up. All of these things are being used by God to intervene in the life of of a family. And the beautiful thing is this, that all of the guilt that the brothers would become capable of feeling, and they're beginning to feel it here. They can feel the heat in this story. You can tell they're, they're losing their courage in sin. They're becoming undone. And the beautiful thing is that all of the guilt that they are capable of feeling, Joseph would prove capable of forgiving. Isn't that a beautiful thing? There's no depth of guilt that they're able to feel which Joseph corresponding isn't have the willing capacity to forgive. And that'll be an exciting moment when we get to that part in the story. But so it is with Christ. We can say with the psalmist, search me, O God. Know me. Know every wicked way that is in me. You can be naked before the living, holy, almighty God. Plummet the depths of my soul. Awaken my conscience because all that your conscience is capable of feeling, Christ is able to forgive. It's a marvelous truth. 
Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven, whose, whose sin is covered. There's no reason to run. There's no reason to hide. There's no reason to cover ourselves. There's no reason to lie. That's the wonder of our conscience. It can be silenced. That's the danger of our conscience. It can be silenced. Tragically, by constant sinning, our conscience can be shut up. And it's the mercy of God when it is woken up. And all that it is awoken to can be cleansed. That was the second point, conscience awakening. I'm going to close by a couple of very practical things that I would like to apply. That we see in the brothers something that is still very true today, and it is this. Time does not heal sin, but God does. Time never removes guilt, but God can. It's interesting, Joseph in the last chapter we saw named one of his children, Manasseh, which has to do with him forgetting all of his hardships, all of his trials, all of the things that he's gone through. He's forgotten them. It was a mercy of God. But the brothers clearly haven't been able to forget. It's all there. It's all now ringing fresh in their ears. They, 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 have, no, they have no silence in their head. They have no peace. Time does not remove guilt. Only God can remove guilt. Time is the devil's counterfeit for repentance. You know, a week, two weeks, a year, ten years, a lifetime, that'll go away. Time is the devil's counterfeit to repentance. But a year ago in the news, I was following a story of a man who was a serial killer in California. Remember that? He was a, he was a policeman in his vocation years earlier. And they discovered he's in a wheelchair now. And they discovered that this man was a serial killer 30 years ago. They brought him into court. They brought him into court and they didn't say, well, you know what, it's been 30 years. They don't, yeah, it's okay. Time heals stuff, you know. No, they brought him into court. And they brought every single offense to him. They said, you were guilty of these crimes. Time does not heal the guilt of sin. But God does. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2, 4 says that the kindness of God is to lead us to repentance. Second thing is this. Joseph intercepts his brothers with these words. If you do what is right, I fear God. At a turning point in the story, I fear God. It's such a, a simple thing to say, but it's, a, it's exactly the thing that was missing in his brothers' lives. Exactly the thing that he was plummeting their souls to see if they even had the capacity for it. I, I fear God. Through his interpreter. I mean, you've used your imagination, I hope already this morning in this story. Use it again. This Egyptian lord comes into the prison and through an interpreter speaks to the covenant family, the family of Abraham, the family of Jacob, the promised family, the family of faith, the family that's called to fear God on the earth so that the whole world would know what it looks like to fear God. Through an interpreter speaks to them, if you do what is right, I am a God-fear. Wow. <laughs> really? You? Well, which God? You mean, you mean Yahweh? You fear that God? Are you a God-fear? Do you know people who fear God? I've made it a life discipline to try to spend time with people who I know fear God more than I do. 
And I can't tell you what a help that has been through the course of my entire life. Helping me, guiding me, showing me. What does it look like to fear, to fear God? But it's, it's such a simple thing, and in our culture is more and more silence, more and more feels like boldness, more and more feels like it's not allowed, more and more feels like it's offensive to the people around us. The, the simple idea that I live in this world as a God-fearer. Don't underestimate the power that God is able to use in the awakening of a soul by the simple idea, I fear God. Joseph doesn't accuse them of their crimes against him. He doesn't harangue them. He doesn't use his authority saying, you did this and you need to say you're sorry and oh, this. He simply says these words, and it, and it rocks their boat. They're completely undone after this. They open their socks, and they go, yeah, it's God, all right. He's, he's done it. And Joseph simply interjects these words into their hearts that reaches the depths of their souls. I am a God-fearer. And so don't underestimate the power of wherever you go. You're not going to have wisdom for everybody for all the questions they have, perhaps. And don't be intimidated by entering into relationships and ministry opportunity, whether it's at camp this summer, whether it's at our kids' camp this summer. The opportunity to be around children and let them see there are people in this world who fear God. They are like trees planted beside living waters that bear fruit in its season. Not so the wicked. Would you please pray with me? Let's pray. Gracious and mighty God, help us through these stories to know your mercy and grace in our own lives. Thank you. Thank you for our conscience. Thank you for how wonderfully we are made in your image. And I pray that we would lay hold of Christ as our only sole hope, our Redeemer, our Savior, merciful one to us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.